Amen. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Um, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we're going to take a little pause on our Sermon on the Mount series and move over a few chapters to uh, the beginning of the greatest week in all of human history, and we're going to celebrate uh, Palm Sunday. Um, so go ahead and turn there. As you turn there, let me know or let me let you know about a few things. Um, as Chris just mentioned, we've got a busy week here at the church, and we're thrilled um, for all of the ministry that's going to be happening during the week. Um, he mentioned Thursday night is communion. I would highly encourage you to show up with your family. We'll have elders here, prompts on the screen where you can, as husbands or fathers or mothers, you can lead your family just through a time of prayer and thanking Jesus for his body broken and his blood shed and come down and our elders will serve you the elements. And then uh, also on Thursday, we have our men's lunch. So if you're a man in the room, or a man in the room, if you're a man in the room, if you're a man in the room, um, Feel free to join us. It's an awesome time Thursday for lunch. It's free. We'd love for you to join us and just connect with godly men in our church and this community over God's word. And then Friday, Good Friday services, Sunday, Easter services, which we are thrilled about. Um, but I do want to let you know about another thing because we won't get to talk about it next week. But Saturday, April the 23rd um, is the Life Choices Life Walk. And Life Choices has been a dear ministry partner and friend to our church. And uh, there's some pictures of past Life Walks behind me. Um, but this is something we've been doing for years. Um, God's just put this ministry on our heart, put this ministry on um, some dear families in our church body's heart to show up and support uh, all that they're doing to help um, men and women um, in crisis pregnancy situations and fathers and mothers as they are um, navigating an unforeseen or unplanned circumstance and uh, giving them biblical counseling and medical um, medical treatment and all those things, fully licensed medical um, facility as well, and just giving them biblical wisdom and counsel and helping mothers and fathers um, choose life. And uh, you guys know Mackenzie Harris and the Harris family has done incredible work just to support this ministry. And as a church, we see that God's letting his light shine through them and we give him glory and we show up and we support that. So if you go to highpointonline.com slash missions, you can sign up for the Life Walk. And literally, it's Saturday, April 23rd from 10 to 12. You show up and Life Choices does a little presentation in the morning. And then we get to just be a church family and walk around the zoo together and have a great time. So um, it's a great way to honor and support life and to just hang out as a church family on the 23rd. So we'd love for you to, to do that if you um, would like to. So um, last announcement. Um, we don't get paid to say this. Uh, we didn't create this app. But if you don't have the app Easter Now, um, I would encourage you to get it. Um, it's just a, it's an iPhone or Android app called Easter Now. And what it does, um, you essentially will get notifications all throughout the week um, at the events and at the times that Jesus was experiencing Holy Week. So today at 11 o'clock, you would have got a notification that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. And then all throughout the week as he's um, getting arrested and betrayed as he's celebrating Passover, you'll get notifications and reading prompts all throughout the week at those times. And you essentially get to kind of live and experience Holy Week um, with Jesus. And you'll get to read these prompts. And it's really cool. Like I said, we didn't make it. We don't get any money for promoting it. But it's helped me in my own devotional life, especially during Holy Week. And I think it would help you, um, help you lead devotions as a family, just help you be kind of in the spirit and um, Help your walk with Christ as we walk through this incredible week. And like I said, it is the greatest week in all of human history. So um, it's a really cool app that will help you as you uh, journey through it with us. So I think I'm done with those. If you uh, are in Matthew 21 um, and you would like to stand, we'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we are going to read <clears throat> Matthew 21 verses 1 through 
17. Um, it says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out to the city, to Bethany, and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Thank you for standing in honor of God's word. And let's pray together. Lord, um, as always, um, as a family, as a body of believers, um, God, we gather to hear from you. Um, it is the people of God gathered around the word of God to hear from the voice of God by the spirit of God. Um, so God, we pray that you would speak. This isn't about a personality or a man. God, we want to hear from you. Um, thank you for your word, God, that by it we can know you, that we praise you according to how you've revealed yourself in your word. So God, our intimacy, our praise, our joy, all centers around who you've revealed yourself to be in your word. So God, thank you for this book. Thank you for um, the way that you use it to conform us to the image of your son. So do that now. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to dive into Palm Sunday this morning and talk about the significance of it, because if you're like me, some of you are like, what in the world is going on? Like, why do we celebrate the fact that Jesus rode a donkey and that there were palm branches? And like, what does that mean? And what's going on? Um, people were excited. But beyond that, it's like, OK, what was happening? And uh, to kind of set up the scene for you. I do want to let you know that there are um, a select few of stories in the Gospels that are mentioned in all four. Um, Jesus is. Holy Week, his last week, essentially takes up 30 to 40% of the Gospels. So if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, about 40% of all of the writings center around this week, which is why we say it is the most important week in human history. And all of the Gospel writers knew this, and they center most of their writings around it. And there are a few passages of Scripture um, that are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in John. I mean, Jesus' birth narrative isn't even mentioned in all four, but Palm Sunday is. Um, it's a very important moment in Jesus's life. It's a very important moment in Israel's history. And uh, we're gonna look at it together. And to kind of give you some context and just to, to kind of set the scene for you, um, we're gonna be walking through Matthew. But what's crazy about the Palm Sunday story and narrative is that there's different details that are mentioned in different gospels that we don't get all in the same gospel. Um, for instance, John's 
um, telling of Palm Sunday is the only one that mentions that they were palm branches. Others just say branches, right? So we know that they were palm trees because of John. And there's different little details and elements like that. Um, It doesn't mean the stories are different. In fact, they're not different. Um, It doesn't mean that the truth is different. Um, But they all take different angles at um, the story of what they're trying to communicate. Um, We can see in John's gospel that this is fresh off of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, from that moment on, if you read in John chapter 11, it says the one, the scribes and the Pharisees plotted to kill him in that moment. Like that was the moment that they were like, okay, this guy's got to go. We've got to get rid of this man. But it also shows that the crowds um, had decided in John chapter 11 that they wanted to follow. They wanna meet Lazarus, right? It's not just because of Jesus. They're like, we gotta talk to this guy who was dead and now he's back. And what was that like? And what did you see? Like all the things. So you've got more crowds gathering Jesus is coming from Bethany, which is next to Bethpage, which is on this road, a 17-mile road from Jericho to Jerusalem. So they're kind of midway through, and uh, Jesus often spent time in Bethany. Um, In fact, most commentators um, widely agree that Jesus probably stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their home. Um, He starts this story in Bethany, and then at the end of the story, as we read in um, verse 17, he goes back to Bethany to stay there and to spend the night there. Um, So it's widely believed that Jesus spent a lot of time in Bethany, but he's just been there. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. All of these people are wanting to meet Jesus and Lazarus. Like if you can raise somebody from the dead, it's gonna bring a crowd and draw a crowd Um, In John chapter 12, Jesus prays to God and he says, glorify your name and God audibly speaks and he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So you've got all of this commotion around Jesus and then it's time for him to head into Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, in fact, if you wanna know kind of how Luke's gospel is split, um, Luke chapter one through nine essentially is Jesus' teaching and his birth and the miracles and all those things. And in Luke chapter nine, it says, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that moment on, Jesus was um, preparing for and looking for and moving towards um, his finished work and what he would need to accomplish um, in Jerusalem. Um, But all of the gospels center their focus on this one week. And we're gonna look at the entrance here um, from Bethany into Jerusalem. So it says this in verse one of Matthew 21. It says, um, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So they're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus sends two of his disciples on this special mission. And we don't know which two he sends. Um, Later in the week, he'll send Peter and John um, to go get the upper room prepared. And those guys are named. I'm not saying that's the two that he sends here, Um, but Jesus sends these two disciples on this mission. And even the word in Greek that means he sent means to send with a message or to send with a mission. So Jesus sends them with a specific mission. And just like God and his sovereign ways, Um, all authority, omniscient, all-knowing, sends these two disciples to this mission to go get these two animals. And it says a donkey and a colt. And to kind of clear that up, I know we've got different um, definitions of the word colt in America in our day. Um, But what he's talking about here is a donkey and a baby donkey. 
Uh, back then, a colt was a donkey that was believed to be four years or less, I believe. But it just a, a mother donkey and a baby donkey that he is going, he's sending these disciples to get. And just in Jesus's incredible supernatural ways, he sends these disciples on this mission and he gives them the exact words to say. And he says, if someone asks, which really means like, hey, someone's gonna ask, and here's what I want you to tell them. And there's a, this is another sermon for another day, but it's so encouraging and incredible to see that God will send his followers on a mission and he will give them exactly what they need to accomplish the mission. That's true for you and me. That's true for his disciples in this moment. That when he sends us on the great commission, what does he say? I have all authority and I'll be with you. I'm gonna give you everything you need. And he sends these disciples on this mission and he says, hey, if somebody asks, which as always, someone asks and says, what are you doing? And what does he tell them to say? He says, say to them that the Lord needs them and they will send them at once. The Lord needs them, right? The Christ, the Messiah, the long awaited one. He needs these animals. The King is here. The Messiah is coming. The one we've been waiting for. He needs these animals and they'll send them with him. Jesus gives his disciples the mission and the words to say and exactly what they need to accomplish the mission. And then it says this, Matthew gives us this little insight. He says in verse four, he says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now here's what's crazy about this. This was five centuries before this moment, 500 years give or take a few, before Jesus is going to ride into town, the prophet, this is quoting Zechariah 9, Zechariah gets this vision of the coming king and he says he will show up humble and riding on a donkey. And Jesus arranges that he would fulfill this prophecy. Hey, go to these people, ask for the cults, bring them. When they ask, here's what you tell them. And here's what's interesting about this passage. And if you um, have been following us through Matthew, you know this is very um, common with Matthew. Um, all of the gospel writers had different um, aims. I mean, the, the one central aim was to show the person and work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners, but their approach to telling the story depended on their audience, just like you and I. If we had to share the gospel with someone, our approach would be tailored to our audience. So if you were talking to someone who was an atheist um, who didn't believe in God, right? You would approach the good news of the gospel in a certain way. But if you were talking to someone who was post-Christian or who believe in multiple gods, you would change your approach, right? If someone doesn't believe in absolute truth, you're gonna start in a whole different place. You're not gonna change the story or change the facts, but you're gonna change the way in which you tell the story, right? Based on who your audience is. And the gospel writers do that. Matthew was a Jew and he was writing to a Jewish audience. So all throughout Matthew's gospel, he uses this phrase, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. You can't get through the first two or three chapters of Matthew without reading this phrase like 10 times. When he says that Jesus would be born of a virgin, Matthew says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. When he says that Jesus would escape to Egypt after his birth, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he would go back, this took place to fulfill. And then he would be in Nazareth, this took place to fulfill what was spoken. Matthew, all throughout the gospels, what is he doing in Matthew, in his letter? He is trying to show his Jewish audience that Jesus truly was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, that all of the Old Testament law and the prophets, who they were pointing to, they were pointing to this man. So all throughout Matthew's gospel, he's showing us all of the Old Testament signs that are pointing to Jesus. In fact, 96 times in Matthew's gospel, he quotes the Old Testament. 
to show his Jewish audience, this is the Messiah. Now, Mark was different. Mark's gospel is shorter. So if you want to read a shorter gospel, dive into Mark. And Mark was a missionary. He's involved in some of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts. Um, he makes some mistakes. Eventually, Peter gets a hold of Mark and restores him, which is very um, significant because somebody knows how to make mistakes and be restored. It's Peter, right? And he knows grace. He knows forgiveness. He restores Mark. And Mark goes out of his way in his gospel to show that Jesus Christ has all authority. He has the same authority as Yahweh is the God of the Old Testament. And you can't read the first few chapters of Mark without seeing that Jesus has authority to forgive sin, to heal the lame and the blind, authority over demons and to cast out demons, authority over the wind and the waves. But all throughout Mark's gospel, he's showing us that Jesus has authority. Luke's gospel is different. Why? Because Luke's writing to a different audience. The truth is the same, the person is the same, but Luke is writing to a Gentile. He's writing to this man, one guy, named Theophilus, and we get the benefit of reading Luke's letters, Luke and Acts, to this one guy, but Theophilus was a Gentile. So what does Luke do in his letter? He starts immediately showing how Jesus Christ came not just for the Jews, but he came for all nations. He came for the Gentiles. So you see in Jesus' birth narrative in Luke chapter two, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for what? For all people. And at the end of Luke 2, he says that Jesus would be a light of revelation for the Gentiles, for all nations. And then all throughout Luke's gospel, Luke records the most amount of parables. And what were parables? They were stories told to Gentiles because they didn't have the Old Testament law to explain the kingdom of God. So Luke includes all of these Gentile teachings for his Gentile reader to hear and understand the kingdom. Do you see how they're different? John is way different. If you wanna read a gospel, I would encourage you to read the book of John. John doesn't even start with Jesus's earthly birth. He starts from eternity past. And John goes out of his way to show that Jesus was God himself. He was the eternal God. And he begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and nothing that was made um, happened or was made unless it was made by him, that by Jesus, all things that were made, he's the eternal word of God. He was there when creation was made. He's the word of God made flesh. He is God in human form. And John goes through his gospels and he plays on the book of Exodus where God says, I am who I am. And what does John do? He tells all of these stories about how Jesus says he is the I am. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. He's the resurrection and the life. And John goes through and shows the eternal deity of Christ and that you and I could have life in his name if we believe in him. This is eternal life. You know God. You know Jesus Christ, the one, one true God whom he sent. It's incredible. But John takes this more eternal deity approach. So I would encourage you, if you wanna read a gospel, now you kind of know what, what the lanes are, and pick one and run in it. Um, as we study other books, I had a professor tell me, always keep one foot in the Gospels. Um, so as you read other things, um, I would just encourage you to don't go too far from the Gospels. Um, it's cool to see um, in the Old Testament that God describes himself as a God of mercy. It's another thing to see later on in the epistles that God, uh, what his mercy has accomplished, like in 1 Peter, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again and all those things. But it's another thing to read the gospels and to see Jesus kneel down to someone caught in adultery and show mercy, right? 
So don't leave too far from the gospels. That's just my encouragement to you and wisdom to you. As you study other things, it's important for us to just see how Jesus interacts with humanity and therefore interacts with us. But um, Matthew goes out of his way to show us that Jesus coming in on this donkey was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And he quotes Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. And we'll look at it um, in a few minutes, but I want you to see that. And then what's so fascinating about this is another detail that we get in John's account of Palm Sunday is John tells us, and if you wanna make a little note in your margin, in John 12, verse 16, John tells us that his disciples did not understand what was going on at the time. That even Jesus' disciples did not fully comprehend the significance of this moment. And it wasn't until after Jesus died and was glorified that they started putting all of these things together. And we can see that. Um, Jesus is being arrested and Peter's like, no, you don't, and pulls out his sword and starts fighting. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Like, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is, this, this is what I've been telling you about. Like, you still don't get it. And all throughout the gospels, we see that the disciples didn't fully comprehend. And John tells us in John 12, 16, that they didn't really put all the pieces together until after Jesus had died and rose and was glorified. And then they, oh, he truly was. This was the man. And they start point, putting together all of these Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew writes this after the resurrection and includes this detail for us. But verse six, it says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and the other, uh, <clears throat> others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So here we get the donkeys and the cloaks and the branches. And some of you might be going, what is going on here? These two disciples bring these two animals back and immediately the disciples start taking off their cloaks and putting them on the donkeys. And uh, what's so interesting, um, Mark and Luke's gospels um, tell us in the Palm Sunday passage that these donkeys, uh, this young donkey, this colt, was one that had never been sat on before, that it was essentially unbroken. And that's an important detail. Let me give you a homework assignment this week. Um, go and find a donkey or a colt or a horse that has never been sat on and just jump on it. Go for it. Hop on it and just hold on for dear life. Yeah, shaking your head back there. Like, there's no way, right? There is absolutely no way. That thing would buck and flail and knock you off and injury is short to follow. And what's so significant about this moment is that the savior of the world comes to this animal who by nature, would knock him off. And when the author and the sustainer and the creator of nature sits on you, there's perfect peace. Because that little cult knew who her king was. And they bring this young animal to Jesus and he sits on, they put the cloaks on the colt and Jesus sits on the colt and no throwing him off, no tantrum, no nothing. That the prince of peace sits on this animal and there is perfect peace, this glimpse of the coming kingdom where the lion would lie with the lamb and that all creation would be brought to its original design and its intent. And we get a tiny little piece of that, which just makes me well up with affection and worship. Like that's, I can't wait for that moment. But we see a glimpse of that in this moment. And then you might be saying, okay, what's going on with the cloaks? Um, the cloaks were, if you, um, it, was, it was common practice in the Old Testament, um, especially when a new king was anointed, that um, his companions, uh, the people around him, his servants, 
that they would take off their cloaks and they would lay them down for the king to walk on, just a sign of reverence and um, majesty and all of those things. In fact, we see this in 2 Kings uh, 9, verse 13. I won't let you, I won't read the whole story, um, but you can make a, a note of an example of this. But Elisha is told to anoint this king, um, Jehu, and Elisha goes in and anoints the king and immediately, which Jehu sounds very similar to another king that would be anointed, but Elisha goes in, anoints this king Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9 uh, to be the next king of Israel, and immediately, the scripture says, all of the men around him, all of his men took off their cloaks and they laid them on the steps for him to walk on, and they started yelling, Jehu is king. So this was a common practice, um, but the disciples know that Jesus is riding into town. Um, all of the other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to him as um, king as he comes in. And they take off their cloaks and they lay them down for Jesus um, to sit on on the donkey, but then for the donkey to walk on into the town. And what's so interesting about this is this was predicted in Zechariah chapter nine, but this was also predicted in Genesis. Um, and the verse won't be on the screen, but in Genesis chapter 49, as Abraham is dying, Abraham looks at his 12 sons and each son would go on to eventually their lineage would be each of the 12 tribes of Israel and he looks at Judah and he says that the king's scepter would not depart from Judah, that there will always be a king that would come from the line of Judah and his kingdom will never leave that line. And then he says that the king would tie his colt to the choice vine. And what he's talking about here is this king would come, he would rule with the scepter, he would have all authority. And then this, this idea that he would tie his colt to the choice vine, you would never do that in the first century. You would not pick your, vet, your best vine that was fruitful and then tie your animal to it, right? Because why? He would eat it all. And then you would have nothing to eat. And Abraham is giving us this glimpse by the Holy Spirit to show us that when the king comes, that there will be blessing upon blessing where you'll be able to tie your animal to the choice vine. Because he's coming to bring abundance and um, all of the blessings of heaven. So we see, and even way back in Genesis, that there is a mention of a king from the line of Judah, we know that would be from the family of Jesse. He would be a son of David and that a cult is mentioned and that he would bring a cult with him. And we see this happening in Matthew chapter 21. So this was a big deal. And like I said, John tells us um, in his gospel that they were bringing palm branches. Now the significance of the palm branches was the palm tree. Um, if there was a national tree of Israel or if there was a national flag of Israel, it would be the palm branch. The palm branch was this symbol for all of Israel. Um, if you've ever been to Israel, if you've ever studied Israel, uh, about Israel, Israel is a dry, desolate place. There's not a lot of green and lush and tropical things. Like It's, it's brown, it's gray, it's tan. Um, the roads are dirt and gravel. There's not a lot of lush greenery there. There's barely any. It is a dry, desolate place. And the palm branch was essentially this sign, there's palm branches in Israel, of God establishing and bringing um, nourishment and satisfaction and, and you know, care to his people. That in the middle of this dry, desolate place, God would nourish his own children and protect them and care for them. That was the palm tree. And all throughout, in fact, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, they were instructed in Israel's history to take these palm branches and to build these little tents, these tabernacles, and they were to do this once a year. And what they would do is they would commemorate and remember when God freed them out of um, slavery and Exodus. And as they traveled to the promised land, they stayed in these tents that they, you know, these makeshift tents that they made with palm branches. 
So once a year, God would command Israel to go get some branches and to make these tents to commemorate what he did, how he protected them and cared for them and provided for them as they fled from Egypt and traveled to the promised land. So it's, it was as if Israel and the Israelites, these crowds, were waving these national flags of Israel as the king of Israel was riding into town. Like, it was a big deal. It was a huge deal. And what we also know from this text um, and from this time period is this was Passover, right? Three or four days later on Friday, Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. So there's estimated anywhere from half a million to two million Jews were gathering in Jerusalem at the time. So I'm, you know, we're not talking about just the Carnival Parade, right? We're talking about tens of thousands of people are gathering because this king is coming. And not everybody understood, right? We see later in the text that some are like, what's going on? Why is everyone excited? Some people are yelling for the wrong reasons, but people know that there's a man who's coming and everyone's saying he's king, he's the son of David, this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for, this is the guy that's gonna bring all of the goods, he's gonna overthrow Rome, he's gonna bring us all of these earthly blessings, this is the king, this is the one we've been waiting for. And everybody's getting excited, they're getting their palm branches, kids are screaming and yelling, and everybody wants to see the king. And it says this, in uh, verse nine, it says, and the crowds that went before him and, <clears throat> and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now here's what's so fascinating about this passage is this entrance into the town was not uncommon. All throughout the Old Testament um, and in those days, uh, when kings or conquerors would defeat an enemy if it was a rival nation, if it was someone invading, if they had to go out and, and fight, what they would do is they would go out and win victory, but then when they would show up and they would return back to their city, it was called, this arrival was called a parousia. It's the Greek term, and it means the coming of a king or the arrival of a king. And how this would work, would a king would show up on a stallion or a mule or on chariots, and he would be coming into town, and because the town was saved by their king and was protected by their king, they would all run out to meet the king on his way in. And they would prepare the way for him, they would lay things on the ground, they would shout for him, they would praise him. So this was a very common thing. Now, when conquering kings would ride into town, the town would go out to greet him and meet him and prepare the way and follow him in and shout praises to him as he would come in. It's called a parousia. And Jesus is essentially doing one of those where he comes into town, except Jesus doesn't show up with fireworks and a press release and a stallion and chariots. What does he do? He shows up humbly, as Zechariah says, on a donkey, and let me just paint the scene for you. They're, they're, they realize that this was a messianic figure, right? They start shouting Hosanna, which means save us, we pray, or save us now. Save us, son of David. So they knew who Jesus was, that he was at least a descendant of David, and they're asking for salvation. Save us. And we'll see in a minute that a lot of them didn't understand what salvation they were asking for. Just like in the Old Testament days, they were looking for this political figure, this conquering king, an Alexander the Great figure who had already existed before this, 
a Julius Caesar figure who had existed before this, who would show up and win salvation through dominance and through power and through strength and through might. And he would overthrow the the world leader at the time. Alexander the Great did that. He overthrew Persia. Julius Caesar did that. He overthrew Greece. And they were expecting this Messiah to show up and bring this physical kingdom of blessings and possessions and wealth. And we're no longer under Roman rule, overthrow the government and bring the goods. Hosanna, come and save us. But they knew that this Messiah, this this person coming was a descendant of David. They're praising the arrival of the king. They're waving the international sign, right? Here's these palm branches. They've got their cloaks on the ground. Here comes our king. And you can imagine some of them are getting confused, like a cult? Like really? Out of all the things? And Jesus doesn't show up like other kings. And he rides into town and he's meek and he's humble, but they're calling Jesus the son of David and they're quoting this Hosanna phrase is a Psalm of David, which is so fascinating. Here's a descendant of David and they're quoting a Psalm of David and they say Hosanna in the highest. It's almost as if it's very similar to the New Testament where we say glory to God in the highest, right? That this highest heavenly being, this this highest of praise person would come and bring salvation to us. And they start praying this and screaming this and saying this. And then it says this in verse 10, and when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So let me paint this picture for you because this is a massive scene. Jesus shows up. There's anywhere from half a million to two million Jews in Jerusalem. They weren't all there gathering. But I mean, talk about crowds going up the Mount of Olives covering the streets. Everybody's there for the Passover. There's all of this buzz stirring around that this king, this Christ, this promised one, this Messiah who is gonna come and overthrow the government, right? That Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders, that all of these promises, this guy's gonna come and he's gonna establish a physical kingdom. And here comes Jesus humbly trotting through on this colt that had never been ridden before. And you've got people shouting and praising. We'll see in a few verses, you've got kids shouting and praising. You probably had zealots um, who wanted to overthrow the Roman government who were pumping their fists and beating their chest and super excited. You've got Roman soldiers who were like clenching their spears going, okay, are we about to have a mutiny on our hands? Like getting curious, probably getting defensive, getting ready to stop a riot if they have to. You've got these Scribes and Pharisees who are growing increasingly more furious. They'd already decided to kill him. And now the whole city is praising him. What are they gonna do now? What is Jesus doing? And Luke's telling of the, the Palm Sunday passage, Luke tells us that Jesus was weeping. And there's a few times in the text where Jesus weeps. Um, he weeps when Lazarus dies He weeps in this moment, and I can't remember the third moment, but he weeps in this, as he's coming into Jerusalem, Jesus is weeping. Why? Because he knows he's not the king that they were expecting. And he starts talking about how one day that Israel would be overturned and there would be no stone unturned and and Rome would essentially just wipe out the temple. And Jesus is weeping because everyone's praising him for a king that he did not come to be. They wanted this physical kingdom, this physical ruler who would show up with power and might and dominance. And Jesus, on his way into town, begins to weep. 
and is so upset that Israel still doesn't see it. They don't see it. But where does Jesus go? Jesus goes into the temple. In verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Um, before we get to the temple, you can even see in their response, the crowd say, who is this guy? And they say, he's a prophet, right? <laughs> he's, he's a prophet. In fact, this was very common. And uh, you remember in the gospel stories when Jesus looks at um, his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they say, you're a prophet like um, Elijah or like Jeremiah. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Um, but it was very common for people to think that Jesus was just a prophet. And here's the, the town saying, it's a prophet. And then Jesus goes into the temple. So he rides into the temple. He goes in and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. John tells us he made a whip of cord and comes in and drives the people out and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And both of those quotes house of prayer and den of robbers um, are from the Old Testament. That this was foreseen um, in Jeremiah 7. It says, has this house, which is called by, by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, where it says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So Jesus comes in, drives out the people. And what's interesting about this is Jesus says, my house. He goes into the temple and he starts calling it his house and he starts running people out like he owns the place. Imagine being a scribe or a Pharisee in that moment. Like, who does this guy think he is? And he's quoting the Old Testament, right? The word of God in flesh, quoting the word of God to these scribes and Pharisees. And it says this, and the blind man came to him in the temple and he healed him. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, what's so significant about that section right there is um, blind and lame and deaf people, any people with dis disabilities, leprosy, you name it, any kind of physical disability were not allowed into the temple. In fact, in Acts chapter three, you see, um, you see uh, this beggar who's outside of the temple gate um, he's not in the temple. He's every morning, he's carried to the gate, the temple gate called Beautiful, so that he could beg and he could ask. Um, when people had leprosy in Jesus's day, they were sent to the priest to go and show him, them when they were healed so that then they could be allowed back into to society and into the temple to worship. And Jesus sees this blind man in the temple and Jesus heals him. And then there's these children in the temple and they're crying out and they're praising and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest and all those kind of things. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going, do you not see what's going on? Do you not see it? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, and this is like the, the reply that would twist the knife in to the side of the scribes and Pharisees. Have you never read? These people that prided themselves in being experts in the Old Testament, experts in the law, experts in their ability to understand the Bible. And Jesus looks at them and says, have you not read? Right? 
uh, public shame and embarrassment. And Jesus says, you don't understand. This is happening in accordance with the scriptures. As Matthew would say, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. And I love this. And let's just camp out here for a second. You've got all of these children that have seen this moment, that seen Jesus heal a blind man, seen him coming into town, and they're shouting Hosanna to the highest. And boy, would we just have faith like a child. And it's another sermon for another day, but there's a reason in Jesus's gospel, he says, unless you have faith of a child, you're not worthy to enter the kingdom. What does he mean by that? If I went to any one of your children, in fact, my dad is cruel. He would do this um, to my friends growing up, but uh, we'd be leaving church and you know, I've got friends around me and their parents were coming and he would say, hey, your parents are gonna take you to Chuck E. Cheese's or to Hawaii or wherever, to Disney. And they would believe him, right? If you go to a, if I go to, you guys stay here. If I go up and down the hallways of High Point Kids and start telling your children, hey, your mom's gonna take you to Disney next week, they'll believe me, won't they? And you'll hate me. It's, it's the faith of a child. They don't know, right? If I go to your child and say, hey, I'm gonna give you a million dollars. They're like, what? no way. Like I can buy lots of Fortnite coins or whatever, you know, like I can do all sorts of things. Same thing goes if you go to a child and say, hey, the God of the universe has shown his grace upon you through the person of Jesus Christ where he would take every single sin you've committed in thought and in word and in deed and he would put them on his son. He would cast them as far as the east is from the west and you could be in right relationship with God because of nothing you've ever done, because of everything he's done if you have faith in him. Faith of a child would say, oh my goodness, that's incredible. But try to tell that to an adult. No way. Too good to be true. No, there's got to, I've got to be able, I've got to earn it somehow. I've got to work for it somehow. There's, you don't know my story. You don't know my sin. You don't know my background. You don't know my mistakes. There's no way it's that easy. Everything else in life is based on works, right? You work for what you get. You work for what you earn. There's no way that this would just be that free. We've got to have the faith of a child who would take God at his word that if you would trust in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your sin will be paid for, put on him. And you've got these children in the temple crying out, Hosanna in the highest. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going, what in the world? And Jesus, essentially, this is what's crazy, is he takes this Psalm 8. He takes this Psalm that is about God, that is about Yahweh, and he applies it to himself. And he says, have you not read that God has ordained and prepared that out of the mouth of babes, you've probably heard that saying before. This is where you got it from. Out of the mouth of babes, out of the mouth of infants, God has prepared and ordained that even infants and babies and children would praise him. And Jesus takes that passage that was pointing to Yahweh and applies it to himself. Stopping the scribes and the Pharisees in their tracks. And I'll read it to you. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength or you've prepared praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And here's what's fascinating about all of this. There's so much significance in this triumphant arrival into Jerusalem. Jesus weeps because the people don't understand. He goes straight into the temple. He starts clearing it out like he owns the place. He starts taking Old Testament scriptures that point to God and applying them to himself. And he goes to the temple. And here's what's so interesting about that. 
Jesus ends up in the temple. And if you know um, what the temple was designed for, the temple is essentially a place where God and man could dwell together and could worship together, where, where man could be in the presence of God and dwell with God. Um, there's multiple temples in the Bible. In fact, we see this in the garden. The garden of Eden was the first temple. That it was there where God, what did he do? He dwelt with man. And what happens in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin? They're immediately sent out of the garden. Why? Because God cannot dwell with sin. So he banishes them from the garden, from the temple. But God makes a covenant with them and his grace, right? He kills an animal and covers their shame and their nakedness, foreshadowing what he would do one day. He makes a covenant with Abraham and the nation of Israel. Through you, I'm gonna bless all the nations. They multiply, they get enslaved in Egypt. God frees them from Egypt. And what does he instruct them to build? A tabernacle, which is a mobile temple. It's where God could dwell with man. So they build this tabernacle and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, the tabernacle where God's presence could dwell with his people. And they carry the tabernacle along with them until they get into the promised land. And through Solomon, God instructs Israel to build a temple. We're not going mobile anymore. We're setting up a structure. And in the middle of Jerusalem, God establishes a temple. And here's what's so fascinating about this. Jesus shows up and goes straight to the temple and he clears it out. And essentially, Jesus is ending temple worship in this moment. In fact, in a few paragraphs later, Jesus will give the parable of the fig tree where he sees this fig tree without any figs on it. And he says, you haven't been fruitful and he cuts it off. And later he'll talk about how Israel wasn't fruitful. And the next time it would be time to worship in the temple, the veil will be torn. And we won't need to worship in the temple anymore. But Jesus shows up and what's so significant about Jesus is Jesus is the true temple. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament um, tabernacle and garden and temple, they were shadows pointing to the true substance. In Matthew 12, verse six, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here. Why is Jesus the greater temple? Because who is Jesus? He is God and man together. It's God dwelling with man. And he came down to earth so God could dwell with man. He is the true temple. Those were shadows pointing to the true substance. So Jesus goes into the temple and clears it out, wipes it out, and he's about to tear the veil in a few days to where you and I, we don't have to go through all these steps and these rituals to worship God anymore in the temple. That through our great high priest, Jesus, we can worship God directly. And what's so significant is when Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit who descends down. And why in the world does Paul call us, if you're in Christ, a temple? because it is God dwelling with man in us, that you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. And God has given us his presence. Now we are temples until Jesus comes again. And when he returns, Revelation 21 and 22 says, there will be no temple. Why? Because you and I will get to dwell with God and dine with him and eat with him and be with him and hear him and touch him. And we will get to dwell with God forever. God and man, there will be no need for a temple. And that's the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. And what's so crazy about this passage is, remember, Passover was coming. And all throughout Israel, they would be looking for spotless lambs to take to the Passover that weekend. And what does God send right into the middle of the temple? A spotless lamb to take away the sins of the world once and for all. That the true lamb had come. And there will be no need for any more lambs. 
Because the, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, has come to take away the sins of the earth. So Jesus shows up. And what's so significant about this moment and this entrance is if you look at the Gospels as a whole, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is doing, this is a terrible term for it, but essentially crowd management. That Jesus was fully aware of the time that God had ordained for him to come to the cross and take the cross and the plan that God had for him on this earth, that he would spend three years on this earth um, discipling these men and teaching crowds and doing signs and wonders that would um, validate who he is and point to the work that he's gonna do. But all throughout the Gospels, especially in the beginning, if you look at Jesus's first miracle, turning water into wine, Mary comes to him and says, hey, help these people out. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Like he's so aware and conscious about um, the Father's plan. And then all throughout the Gospels, as Jesus would heal people, you might have always wondered, okay, why is he telling people, like, don't say anything? Like, he would just give someone their sight back, and he would say, now go and tell no one what, I, what you've seen here, what, what I've done. He would give hearing to the deaf back. He would give the ability to walk back to the lame, and he would say, go and tell no one. Why? He wasn't trying to be mean. He wasn't being weird. He was managing the chaos, that if all these people were out spreading this message and what's so fascinating about when Jesus says this, most of the people just ignore him and they run into town and they go talk about it anyways. The woman at the well, right? Come and see this man who's told me all that I've ever done. They just go running through. Why? Because a new identity produces a new activity. But Jesus was constantly managing this crowd and this commotion. And when the crowds would gather and they would you know, get really big, what would happen? He would either you know, disappear, he would go away, he would go off by himself, or John chapter six would happen and Jesus would start saying really weird things to make the crowds go away. And he would say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they're all like, what in the world? We just wanted some food, and they run off. But Jesus was constantly moving the crowds away. Why? Because his time had not yet come. He knew that the more commotion, the more scribes and the Pharisees would get mad, the, more, the quicker he would be arrested. And Jesus is trying to manage all of this until about midway through Luke's gospel, Luke chapter nine, it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that moment on, you progressively just kind of see the gospel get more and more public until this moment where it doesn't get any more public than this, where Jesus shows up on a donkey fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, riding into the middle of town as tens of thousands of people are, are Israelites are waving kind of the national flag of Israel, laying their cloaks on the ground. As he's coming into town, he goes straight into the temple. He starts, you know, clearing it out like he owns the place. He calls it my house will be a house of prayer. And then he starts quoting Old Testament prophecies saying that they're about him. It doesn't get any more public than this moment right here. And our king rides into town, not like any other king or ruler or conqueror. He rides in meek and humble on a donkey. And the question this morning is what happened between Sunday and Friday? Because the majority of these people who are yelling, Hosanna, save us now, will yell, crucify him. Five days later, what happened? Why were the crowds so fickle? It's the same reason that Jesus is weeping as he entered the town. He knew that they did not want a savior. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted an economist. They wanted a politician. They wanted a military leader. They wanted a Navy SEAL. They did not see what the true problem was. That all of Israel just wanted the next leader to show up and to overthrow the government and bring earthly blessings. They did not want to repent. 
They did not see that the true problem wasn't the government, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't poverty, it wasn't circumstances, that it was sin. And that God had a bigger plan in mind. And it wasn't to go and get rid of our earthly problems. It was to get rid of our sin. This thing in us that would separate us eternally from God. That's the mission that Jesus was on. And the crowds are expecting this political leader, this you know, person to show up and establish his kingdom with force and authority and power. And let me be clear, Jesus has all of those. But he was not coming to establish a physical kingdom in that moment. He will one day. But his plan at that time, God's sovereign, eternal, redemptive plan, was not to establish a physical kingdom with power and with might and with authority. It was to establish a, a spiritual kingdom with love and humility and ultimately with sacrifice for us. That was God's plan, that our, our king had come, the promised one of the Old Testament, and he came not to establish a physical kingdom in that moment, to establish the spiritual kingdom of heaven where you and I could be right with God because of his sacrifice on our behalf. That's what he was doing. And he came humble, he came meek, did not revile, and the disciples still didn't get it. In fact, soon after the resurrection, they're still confused. If you look at Acts chapter one, Jesus had already died and rose. He spent 40 days with his disciples and they're still asking him in Acts one, like Jesus, are you gonna set up your kingdom now? Like this is it, right? You beat death. What's left? Like build your kingdom, we're ready for it. James and John had already asked like, hey man, when you do this, can we be at your right hand and your left? Like my mom's gonna come over here and talk to you about this. We wanna be there. And Jesus like, you don't understand what this kingdom is gonna cost and what it's gonna look like. And he had already rose and they're saying, are you gonna set up your kingdom? And what's his response? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I'm not building that kind of kingdom that you're looking for just yet. I am here to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts and minds of my bride, my children. And it's gonna come through teaching and sacrifice and love and generosity and laying down your lives for others pointing to what he has done for us on the cross. That's what he was doing. And here's what's so crazy about all of this. Um, if you remember the Passover, all of the firstborn sons in Egypt were spared because the blood of the lamb was shed and put on the doorpost. Why were they spared? Because at the cross, God would not spare his firstborn son. And you see this new kingdom, this new way, this new Passover lamb who would show up and would pay for the sins of the people once and for all, where you and I could be spared. And the, the, the Israelites just missed it. They didn't see it. They weren't looking for a savior. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted an, an economist. They wanted the next politician. They wanted a military leader. They did not see their sin and they did not want a savior. And five days later, when they see that he does not fight, he does not revile, he does not punch back, they say, crucify him. Wasn't the one we wanted. Wasn't the guy we thought we needed. And praise God that he did not send us the savior that we wanted, but he sent us the savior that we needed. He sent Jesus Christ to do for us what you and I could never do for ourselves. 
And here's what's so fascinating about this. All of the, the scriptures that are mentioned in this passage point to not a earthly salvation, but a heavenly, a spiritual salvation. Zechariah 9, when he comes in, Matthew doesn't mention this, but the very verse he mentions, I want to show it to you. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. I'm cutting off the war. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall what? Speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That this parousia, this arrival of the king was to bring a spiritual salvation. And here's what's so incredible about this arrival is that there will be another parousia. There will be another one. And if you are in Christ, you and I will get to participate in that one. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage people with these words. What is Paul saying? That just like in Israel, in this day, in Jerusalem, when the crowds went out to meet their Savior, although they did not understand what he was coming to do, they met him, they praised him, they prepared the way for him, they followed him into victory. When Jesus returns again, the second parousia, guess what happens? You and I, whether we're here on earth or if we're dead, we'll be caught up into the air as he comes down, we'll meet him in the air, and we will all follow our king back to earth as he comes to rule and reign forever not on a colt, but on a horse. And he will come to establish the physical kingdom that we've all been waiting for. And what does Revelation 7 say? This is what John says in Revelation. Notice the similarities. Notice what we'll be doing. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That there will be a second arrival and we can be encouraged that if you are in Christ, you will get to participate in the next one when our king comes to establish his kingdom and his throne forever and defeat sin and death once and for all. He has defeated it on the cross, but he will defeat the very presence of sin and death when he returns and Satan himself. What's so fascinating about that is you and I get to participate in that. If you don't know Christ, the only response you need this morning is to cry out, Hosanna. Lord, save me now, save me, I pray, that all of this can be freely given to you through the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done on behalf of sinners, that the true lamb of God has come to the temple of God and has shed his blood for the sins of the people. That you and I can have a right relationship with God, we can have intimacy with God because the true lamb has been slain, the true king has come, and he will come again. So if you have never cried out Hosanna this morning, 
Look, no, you don't need any other action step. If you know that you do not have a relationship with the God of the universe through the person of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that he offers on the cross, all you have to do is cry out, Lord, save me. Hosanna, save me now. I put my faith and my trust in you. And today is the day of salvation. They quote, this Hosanna word comes from Psalm 118. I just wanna read it to you as we close. It says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord that is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you've become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected, the king that Israel rejected, he's become the cornerstone. Peter tells us Christ will either be your stumbling stone or he'll be your cornerstone. In Israel, he was a stumbling stone. But praise be to God that he has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us. Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Our king has come. If you've never cried out Hosanna for the first time, we will stay and give up our whole afternoon to talk to you about Jesus Christ if you want to make that decision today. But do not leave here without making that decision. And for the rest of us, what king are you looking for? What king you're expecting God to be? Are you looking to God for more earthly blessing? Are you continually running after God for the forgiveness of your sin? Yes, he's paid for it fully and finally on the cross, but we still run to him for forgiveness and repentance. Why? Because our sin still affects our intimacy with God. So we run to him. What king are you looking for? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you here so that you think God will just give you more earthly blessing? Yes, God loves to give good gifts to his children, but the ultimate gift that he's given us is salvation through his son, through the true king of Israel, who has come to bring salvation not just to Israel, but to all nations and to all peoples. So until he comes again, and until you and I hear the trumpet and see the parousia coming down and we go up and ride in with him, we give him our praise. We give him our lives. He is worthy of it. We know that in this world we will have trouble, but we take heart. Why? Because he's overcome the world. So we love him. We love one another. We serve one another. And we come to our king, not for blessing. He's free to give us those things, but we come to him for salvation over and over and over again. Lord, save me from this particular sin. I'm not saying you're not saved. Once saved, always saved. We fully believe that when you put your faith in Christ. But he is saving us over time as well. He's sanctifying us. So we continue to run after him to be not just our conquering king, but our suffering servant. It was easy for the Old Testament um, scribes and Pharisees to see that Jesus was a conquering king. We see that the government will be on his shoulders. We see that he's gonna rule and to reign. The thing that they missed was that to be a conquering king, he would be a suffering servant. And just like he has suffered for us, man, we leverage our lives and we give our lives to him. So until he comes again, church, let's praise him. Let's hail him as king. Let's honor him for what he's done and for how he came into Jerusalem, knowing that the cross was five days later. And he came for love's sake on our behalf.